0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: 2022 has been a quiet, boring kind of year.
0: Hasta
3: la vista. (laughs) Baby, thank you.
4: I know that we will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. Some
2: mistakes were made. Amazing. That's the year in three quick acts and no more than about 16 words. It's all there. Anyway, we are going to look back at the best and, of course, the worst of 2022. I'm John Harris, and you are listening, as ever, to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian and our end-of-year special. Joining me to look back on the year and to look ahead to the next in the spirit of excitement, I'm sure, are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Krirar. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hello. Happy Christmas, in fact. Um, Right, I'm now going to try and sum up the year as best I can. Most of the time, I can say as a matter of experience. It's a fool's game trying to summarise years. But I suppose if I was pushed, I'd say that this has been yet another chapter In politics, fragmenting and wildly flailing around in the long wake of the crash of 2008. There is no stability. Everything seems to be in flux. That's the case all over the world. But Brexit has meant that the UK has had a particularly bad dose. No sooner has the pandemic upturned everything than the cost of living crisis comes along. And there's this rising sense of reaping what has been sown over the last 12 years. Stagnating wages, austerity, a sluggish economy. So this year you get what in cliche terms you would call a perfect storm. We zoom through three prime ministers and you end the year with a huge wave of strikes. And in general, looking around, I don't know why I'm laughing, you have a sense that everything really has fallen over. That's what this year has felt like to me. While the UK has got collective whiplash from the speed of political change going on at home, elsewhere in the world, I'm sure 2022 will be remembered as the year that Russia invaded Ukraine and began a war, which, as we all know, is still ongoing. We all looked on in horror as Vladimir Putin illegally entered the country on the 24th of February, 2022. This is what we heard on the BBC.
0: Tonight at six, we're
2: live in Ukraine and the country at war after a huge Russian military offensive by land, sea and air. The onslaught began just before dawn with a barrage of missiles on multiple targets...
0: Right across the
2: country. I wonder whether each of you sort of remember where you were and how you felt emotionally as much as anything else when you first heard that news.
5: I first heard about the actual invasion when I was doing what I do every morning, which was pottering around the kitchen, getting the kids their breakfast and ready for school, and have a Today programme on in the background. And we, the, all the news bulletins, the whole content of the program was about um, Vladimir Putin's announcement of what he described as a special military operation. And there'd been explosions reported in Kyiv and other major Ukrainian cities. There were already reports of um, long lines of cars, of people leaving cities on foot and heading west and trying to get away from um, the potential conflict. and. Yeah, I, we had this sort of rule in our house that if anything comes on the radio that's maybe a bit too intense for the kids, that we, we turn it off or turn it down and listen to it on our, on our uh, you know, put our earbuds in and listen to it ourselves. So, But because of the, the drama of it all, I I didn't do that. I kind of forgot. So the kids were sitting around the table asking questions about it. And it was pretty scary, actually, because it was trying to explain to them that this was actually a conflict happen, happening on the borders of Europe. And for the first time in their lifetime, the first time in my lifetime, and that it was one which we didn't know how it would end. And they sort of heard about Vladimir Putin as this big baddie. Is he going to use nuclear weapons, mommy? Is this going to happen? What's going to happen to all these people? And it was very difficult to provide any answers.
2: I suppose through, throughout that sort of period of flux and political and geopolitical chaos that f- followed the crash of 2008, that question of war of some kind, some sense that, that conflict w- would somehow burst forth in the midst of all that, has been there for years and years and years, and then suddenly there it was. I suppose that's what I felt, that I that I had some sense that something like this was always coming, and now it's suddenly materialised in, in all its awfulness, I suppose.
4: There are some moments where you can tell this is a big story today but it's gone by tomorrow or this is a fleeting interest or and there are some when you think okay this is a moment where everything turns on its head and that was one of those moments where you thought this is going to shape the year but the one that sticks in i have to say the thing that sticks in my mind from the early days of the ukraine invasion was not that first day when we when we sort of heard that it was happening it was the first speeches from the bunker that vladimir zelensky made you know someone who might have been in their last days talking directly not just to their nation but to the world and thinking for a start Christ this is the kind of leadership you don't see anymore certainly that we don't see in our country if you think where Boris Johnson was at the time and secondly you know the Ukrainians are not going to let themselves be forgotten.
2: Talking of which it's worth looking back um, to something that happened on Politics Week the UK in March when we spoke to Kira Ruddick A Ukrainian MP in Kyiv, I I had a long conversation with her about the reality of sort of being a working legislator in in the midst of war, which was one of the most sort of humbling and sobering conversations I think I've ever had. This is sort of a, a, a bit of the edited highlight. She was telling us about her typical day.
6: My day starts with the training. Uh, So I I started from the day one uh, assembling my resistance team here in Kiev. And uh, we are armed and I'm training with the team.
2: And and presumably up to now you had no experience of military activity and guns and all of that. That's completely new.
6: Right. Well, I'm like training for 21 days. So I can tell you I'm much better than on day one.
2: (laughs) And it's fascinating and amazing to me that parliament is still meeting. What what does parliament discuss? What have you been talking about?
6: Well, we discuss everything online and we are only meeting to vote offline because it's super dangerous to do this and every time we decide that we need to get together, our intelligence team, security team, everybody are saying strong no. Strong no. And then, and, and then we figure out the way to do it.
2: That was quite early on in a war which is now in its 10th month. Um, Pippa, Ukraine and the war, I don't know how cynical to sound about this. Um, Boris Johnson made a lot of it, right? I mean, we can talk later on about the crisis in his leadership and, and, and the idea that, Somehow he had to remain prime minister because of the the war in Ukraine. But he definitely pushed it or wanted to be seen to push it right to the top of his agenda. What was your what was your reading of that and what was what was going on?
5: To counter your cynicism, I'll be generous in the first instance, John, (laughs) and say that I think that his his initial instinct was to stand up against what he saw as tyranny. If you cast your mind back, there was some voices in the West suggesting that actually Putin wouldn't actually invade. So I think to be fair to Boris Johnson, I think he decided quite early on that he was going to be that Western voice that that uh, tried to lead um, support for Ukraine. It's slightly more cynical approach would be to say that, and I know we kind of joke about it, but it, I think it's true. He's always had this sort of idea that he could um, have this sort of Churchillian grandeur, that he could be a figure on the world stage and at moments of real international darkness. And to get even more cynical, let's not forget that it was coincidentally helpful for him to have a diversion from all his woes at home. Now I use the words coincidentally because I am being generous here. And I think that I'm not for a minute suggesting that that he went so hard and so fast on Ukraine entirely to distract what was going on. But it was a helpful coincidence. It was a helpful um byproduct of the fact that all of a sudden all of our gaze the media the public's gaze shifted from what was going on at home to what was going on in Ukraine
2: i mean both things can be true in the sense that he he took the stance that he did for the best of reasons but there there came a point at which i think we all remember this there were sort of memes going around suggesting that whenever boris johnson sort of hit the skids in various ways a big story would go out about another Downing Street phone call between him and Zelensky, right? I think it was established there was a direct correlation between the two things.
5: That's right. It wasn't just a meme. I mean, one of my colleagues in the lobby actually drew up a list of when things got particularly bad for him on the Hussle-Partygate row and his domestic rows. And lo and behold, coincidentally, every time there was a call to Zelensky. Now, to be fair, he, he spoke with Zelensky almost daily. So... I think that it was quite easy to make that link. He was very much in touch. And actually, I think we should probably add, post-leaving office is something that he's continued to do, to write and to talk about Ukraine. He still obviously sees it as something that he can contribute. And whether that's about his sort of feeling that he wants to have, still feel relevant and have a role to play, or whether it's about his sort of desire to have some sort of historical legacy that isn't about scandal and, and being ousted by his own party, or whether it is to be generous about him feeling that he is a unique position because he and Zelensky are obviously close and he still has the capacity to speak to other world leaders. Whatever reasons, and maybe it's a bit of all of those, he is still making some quite big interventions. Okay, Gabby, at the
2: time I did that interview, all eyes in the media and politics were on the war, um, but there was also a sense of, well, inevitably, uh, meet the media and politics in the end, are parochial, and that that this will fall away, you know, we'll tune out. And I suppose I feel a certain sense of guilt, we probably all do, about the fact that that's happened, hasn't it? The sort of tuning out did happen, and and politics went parochial again.
4: I'm not so sure about that, because, I mean, we were never going to continue, you know, 24-7 round-the-clock broadcasting um, about Ukraine. Other things were going to take over, particularly given how dramatic this year has been. But I think Ukraine has never, never, ever fallen away but also there's been such a direct impact on British politics you know sort of inflation was only partly caused not wholly caused but you know partly caused by rocketing energy prices in the wake of um, sanctions on Russia and that has entirely driven everything that's happened in, in British politics this year we'll come on to talk about that later but you know it has been the driving force behind all of that it's changed our relationship with Europe I think it's the first tentative signs of us engaging constructively in any way with the EU I don't think it has gone away and I don't think it's going to. And I think the sort of there's a, con- I think there's a constant awareness.
2: OK, I'm now going to do what I was sort of handering in about a moment ago and I'm, I'm going to assume a slightly more parochial UK-focused tone now because we're going to talk about Boris Johnson. Um, Pippa, I think I'm right in saying that when you were asked to choose your political moment of the year, in UK terms at least, you chose Boris Johnson resigning on the 7th of July. Let's have a listen to what that sounded like. I regret and not to have been successful in those arguments. And, of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And, my friends, in politics, no-one is remotely indispensable. There he was, characteristically full of contrition, apologising to the max. Pippa, going back a bit. It was your reporting which started the year before on Partygate that really led to that moment. Can you just talk us through how we got from the early sort of stirrings of that scandal to Boris Johnson resigning?
5: About this time last year, when we had had a summer of not really focusing so much on COVID, people were kind of feeling that it had it had disappeared a bit. It certainly wasn't on the reading the broadcasts, uh, bulletins, or the headlines, and then it started to raise its head again in South Africa with the Omicron variant. Um, Jenny Harries, the UK HSA director, was asked about Christmas parties and whether they should go ahead and suggested that everybody should be quite careful about social interaction. And then number 10 at the briefing that day basically slapped her down and said, no, no, Christmas parties can go ahead. And I'd been working on this story about the previous winter and illegal gatherings in breach of COVID rules taking place, social gatherings, numerous ones. And it felt like that was the moment to publish. So we got the story over the line. which was when I was at the Daily Mirror. And I don't think at that point I could have realised just what impact it might eventually have. What I did know is that stories involving government breaches had a sort of a a reach with the public that politicians often often dismissed and often didn't recognise. Barnard Castle and Dominic Cummings was another one. And it was because of the sort of feeling of hypocrisy, the feeling of sort of two sets of rules that while everybody else was for the most part following the rules for the greater good, those who had written those rules weren't. And I think it was that feeling that made it really resonate.
2: Were you surprised at how long it took between Partygate initially surfacing and Boris Johnson resigning? I just have memories of of doing this podcast every week and going, well, this will be the week. Or someone would say, well, it'll be next week or he's not going to hang on much longer. And in point of fact, it was over six months, right? I mean, it went on for a very long time. Did there come a point at which you thought, God, I mean, he really is sort of tenaciously clinging on here in a way that I didn't think would happen.
5: Well, I don't think I wrote the story thinking that it was going to lead the prime minister, the prime minister falling, to be honest, it wasn't really like that. It was much more incremental. I knew we had other stuff that we hadn't published and over the course of subsequent months managed to get some of those stories over the line. Obviously, other reporters and other organisations, including The Guardian, also broke uh, stories about it and it just kept on coming back. And I do think that actually a lot of it was about that sort of tenacity that you mentioned with Boris Johnson. It was, it was yes, of course, the, the law breaking in the first instance at the heart of government, um, and how the public felt about that, but it was also about the government's response. And Boris Johnson's instinct, as has been the case throughout his career, was to think he could get away with it, to obfuscate, to deny. In some cases, people at Number 10 were lying. We'll see from the Partygate inquiry next year whether Boris Johnson himself um, deliberately misled the House and what the sanction might be. Um, but their response made it 10 times worse and they didn't learn from that throughout. I
2: mean, he, he so, I don't know whether clinging on is the right word, but he sort of fell off and then tried to sort of cling back on anew in the sense that one of, I think the most surreal political moments of the year was the bring back Boris moment. I mean, there were a few bring back Boris moments, but I think the most notable one happened when Liz Truss started to wobble and then she resigned and uh, there was talk of Boris Johnson, serious talk of Boris Johnson having the required number of nominations from Conservative MPs and the idea that he was going to somehow resume the prime ministership. Gabby, that was amazing, wasn't it? It was sort of some token of how mad Tory politics has
0: it, become. It
4: was absolutely astonishing. I think it was just I think it was probably <laughs> the angriest column I've written all year. It was just that pure thing. Oh, like, that's oh good. Christ, not. No, we're not having this. I mean, it was, what, six weeks from resigning, saying nobody is indispensable to deciding that, in fact, the one person who is indispensable is Boris Johnson. Here I am again. Whoa. <laughs> Shall we just pretend the last six weeks haven't happened and I can gloriously come back? And it was the worst thing about it was it didn't even feel real. I mean, he it was, it was on a holiday in the Caribbean because, of course, he was on. I mean, where else would he be as the whole, uh, sort of country fell apart but on holiday in the blooming Caribbean? And the idea that he's making these calls from his sun lounger, you think you don't even want to be prime minister again, as in doing the work. You just want people to want you to. You just want to know that they love you and that you can come back. And then after that, it's all a blank in his mind, what happens beyond that, the sort of hard work bit. No, forget that. I just want to come back in a blaze of glory.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You say it didn't feel real, but in one way, it felt sort of alarmingly real to me was around the time of the Conservative Party conference I went out talking to people in Worcester I don't know why we chose Worcester but we did and you didn't have to try hard to find people who would say I want Boris back you know it was a real thing there was a certain sort of Conservative voter or for that matter someone who voted Conservative maybe for the first time in 2019 both sorts of people were saying that I want Boris back that somehow Boris Johnson's exit is associated with them with the onset of the chaos that we're now living in the midst of. Pipper, in a word, is that it for Boris Johnson? Do you think he would somehow carry on being an influential figure in conservative politics?
5: Almost inevitably. I mean, what I know about Boris Johnson now is that he still thinks that he's got it in him to come back at some point.
2: Okay, on that note, let's, let's talk um, about the chaos and the cost of living crisis. What made Partygate so toxic was that it showed a culture of excess and greed at the top when People, increasing numbers of people were experiencing the exact opposite. In April, Partygate clearly became one of the key themes in the local elections in which the Conservative Party did very badly. We visited Plymouth just before polling day where we spoke to a woman called Lils, a mum with two vulnerable children who was having to rely on food banks to get by and she was very tuned into politics and Partygate and what was going on. She said this.
3: So I voted for Boris to be in and he pretty much kicked me in the head really. The people that voted, he's basically turned around and said, well, no, see you later.
2: And when you say Boris has kicked you, Boris kicked you in the teeth, it sounds like you think he's, he's distant. He's not no, I he's, think he doesn't...
3: he's in, He's not in for the people, I don't think.
2: Did, did you think he was?
3: Uh, originally, I think, you know, you get it all the time. You get this big crusade of what the, this person's like. And then, actually, it's all lies. Personally, I'd like to take him and say, right, I tell you what, you lived my life for a week, you know, there isn't any luxuries. You can't just go out and go, oh, I'll go to the shop, I'll go to Mark's and Spencer's and get a nice packet of crisp. I have to go and get a multi-packet of cheap crisp that tastes like crap. You know, live my life have, for really, a week.
2: I mean, you must have read about like suitcases full of booze and yeah. tables full of party food when you couldn't go out of your house.
3: Oh, don't, because it really frustrates. I've got a sing- small bottle of cider in my fridge that's been in there for two and a half years.
2: That's amazingly sort of vivid stuff, you know. That's how politics and the events that we report on play out in the most sort of visceral ways. I don't know what you what you thought listening to that pepper. That's the sort of fall of Boris Johnson in about twenty five seconds of audio really
5: yeah it's very it's very striking and it's it's something that we've tried to hold on to throughout when we're reporting what goes on at Westminster at the heart of government that actually where it matters isn't in the corridors of power. it's on the streets of Plymouth and the streets of other towns and cities right across the u k and that's why I think this particular story had such an impact because there were so many people like Lils, who were struggling to get by, who stuck to the rules, and who kind of thought, you know what, you lot, you're not, you're not, um, you know, you're not on my side, really. Ultimately, I think is what it comes down to, and that's that's very, very powerful.
2: Um, Gabby, there's also. A point about how far up the income scale the cost of living crisis has gone, you know, the fact that the vast majority of people in various ways are now feeling the pinch. Middle income families, people who previously might have considered their take home pay pretty decent, they're all struggling. And that's a big sea change in politics now.
4: No, and I think you have this transition. It's not just the squeezed middle, which used to refer to squeezed... um middle income families which is uh, different from middle class families I think it you know it goes the squeeze goes really quite a long way up into what would have been called the traditional conservative voting base and that's the change I mean the week before oddly the week before Jeremy Hunt was um, unexpectedly made chancellor I happened to be in his Surrey constituency doing some reporting for a column and was really struck you know it's a prosperous bit of you know kind of surrounding Guildford and surrounding areas that you know commutes into the city is on a good wage and was people were Anxious about their mortgages, anxious about their futures, anxious about all sorts of things that they'd never thought a conservative government would make them anxious about. That's been the game changer this year, has been a shift from feeling that some people are suffering. But for Tory vote, a lot of Tory voters, that was something, you know, austerity was something that happened to other people and didn't affect them personally. Yeah, it's yeah. gone from being, I'm a bit irritated with the prime minister to, no, the prime minister has actively hit me in the pocket. And that's that's the thing from which governments don't come back.
2: Right, let's move on to Liz Truss becoming the Prime Minister. Remember that.
4: We will transform Britain into an aspiration nation with high-paying jobs, safe streets and where everyone everywhere has the opportunities they deserve. I will take action this day and action every day to make it happen.
2: Then let's fast forward a mere 45 days.
4: We set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party.
2: Astonishing stuff. I have downstairs an anti-growth coalition T-shirt that I ordered online. Completely irrelevant now. It's like a relic from a a different (laughs) age. (laughs) Gabby! We can hardly say we were warned about Liz Truss before, right? Everyone knew that she was a, a somewhat eccentric, loose cannon sort of politician. What happened?
4: Everyone, it seems, except from the Conservative Party membership. I mean, the reason, yes, I, pick, exactly right. the reason I picked this as my moment of the year, actually my moment was really the day she beat Rishi Sunak, because that I think was the day that the Conservatives definitively lost the next election. And also the day that you realised, you know, this is a party that has really... Really had its chips because you went from you know the parliamentary party put her forward to the membership knowing what she was you know MPs who worked with Liz Truss were not under an an awful uh, an awful lot of illusions and a lot of them jumped on board because they thought she was going to win rather than because they thought she was going to be competent and then you had this grassroots party that you just saw going through the motions of the leadership contest as if you know sort of still completely gripped by these fantasies of what could be delivered post-Brexit. And you just thought, this is a party, you know, off in la-la land. It's completely lost touch with what the rest of the country wants. And, you know, and then sort of so it... Proved really. We had six weeks that you look back and think, I mean, I, I look back and think, was that an anxiety dream? Did we make that up? Did we, did we sort of, was this just really prime minister? And did she really like kind of wipe billions of pounds off the economy in about half an hour? And did, was there really that mini budget in which everything exploded and we all became obsessed for a while with guilt yields as the measure of our, you know, national health? Did, any of that really happened. Yeah, but
2: the, the the surrealism of that moment has been compounded in the last sort of two weeks or so when I've read sort of insider accounts of what was going on behind the scenes, right? So you're absolutely right. What we saw was weird and absurd. But then, you know, I read Quasi Quatang saying, oh, well, we got terribly carried away. And these accounts of the fact that Liz Truss drinks far too much coffee, And he's more often than not over caffeinated in quote marks. And then sort of people coming into the room, holding flip charts and graphs and saying, please don't do this or this will happen. And then these voices say, oh, just go away. Leave us alone. We don't want to hear that. I wonder, Pippa, and I really wanted to ask you this question. Were you picking any of that up? How sort of weird it was behind the scenes while all of it was playing out?
5: So Liz Truss has always been a, a fairly unique individual. And those of us who have dealt with her in other roles, and she's held several other cabinet positions before she became Prime Minister, did pick up a little bit of that. But I don't think quite the scale of the chaos. Because let's not forget, the first two weeks that she was in office, the Queen had just died and the country was in a state of national mourning. So she had a rare period of taking a rare experience of taking over as Prime Minister and not having the full, the full glare of public scrutiny on her. I mean, Potentially, she could have used that to get her feet under the table. Instead, they appear to have used it to draw up their disastrous mini budget. And then they went straight from that to a trip to the United Nations, where people were focusing about international issues, Ukraine, potential trade deal with the U.S., then we had the mini budget. Then we went into Labour Conference, where other than Quasi Kwartang sticking his head above the parapet and, on the Sunday and saying, you know, there's more of this to come, uh, Liz Truss disappeared until the end of Labour Conference. Then there was a disastrous Tory conference. And then they were back, only then were they back at Parliament and then it all unravelled. So we weren't at Westminster the whole time. She wasn't in number 10 the whole time. There was lots of flitting to and fro. So you picked up little snapshots here and there that was all sort of overlaid with this feeling that she didn't quite have a grip on exactly what was going on and things were lurching out of her control and almost a sense of panic actually John because I think as well as the sort of the ideological drive that she and Kwasi Kwartang shared to push everything through, was also this, this fear that they were going to run out of time
2: I was going to say they were right in that regard that was one of the few things they were right about though. <laughs>
5: Not in the way they thought though possibly
2: <laughs> Right let's talk about strikes now, I mean obviously these are ongoing but they would definitely form a big part of the 2022 story I mean to my mind They're really the biggest non-Westminster political events since the Brexit referendum. Rail workers, postal delivery people, ambulance staff, nurses, teachers, we all know this, border staff, baggage handlers, driving examiners even, either have been or are involved in industrial action over working conditions and pay uh, because of the cost of living crisis and the fact that real-term wages um, have dropped so hugely. That's the sort of atmosphere of 2022 as the year ends. And I suppose, you know, the key sign of the strikes as a huge issue was the sudden appearance in the political foreground of Mick Lynch, the General Secretary of the Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers' Union. I mean, really, how ubiquitous he is as a figure now tells us a lot about where we are. Back over the summer, he joined us on Politics Weekly UK. People living in big cities generally, uh, working on the railway, cannot afford to live, and they're saying we must have an increase. And the best way to address the cost of living crisis is through the pay packet. Not by handouts, as Liv Trust would say, not by occasional uh, bits of windfall, because they're temporary. They need a permanent increase in salaries and wages so that it's there this year and next year. And that means some of the people who, who make money in this society have got to give some of it up. You cannot have redistribution without some of the rich giving some of that money back through progressive tax or impairment on profits. Something quite interesting, it seems to me, happens in the intersection between politics and culture now, almost on a yearly basis, which is when someone, very often someone you weren't expecting, becomes the sort of Princess Diana de no jours, you know, and everybody is encouraged to think that they're great in every conceivable way, and isn't it a wonderful thing that they're in the news all the time? It sort of happened to Jeremy Corbyn a bit in 2017, the old Jeremy Corbyn moment, and, and that was true, certainly on our side of politics, of Mick Lynch for quite a while, um, there's an interesting question about whether that's still the case or whether perhaps he's in a slightly more fragile position than he was over the summer. I mean, certainly, as we record this podcast, we're in the midst of pretty crippling train strikes. Gabby, where do you think the public mood is?
4: I think it's complicated by the fact that people feel differently about different strikes. I mean, there has been, yeah. for a while it's been clear that there is fairly narrow, but there's... there's. Um, more opposition than there is support for rail strikes um, and I think that probably has less to do with the fact that lots of people you because most people don't use trains actually most people don't commute by train you know lots of us not train passengers and therefore um, not hugely affected by I think it's got more to do with the fact that people think oh, the train strikes are pretty frequent I think there is however much stronger public support for the NHS strikes because those I think probably because those feel like you know, nurses never go on strike. If they're on strike now, then something really terrible and awful has, has must have happened. So, you know, everybody's feeling the pinch. You totally get why public sector workers want to raise. I think that some in the Conservative Party assumed it would be bad for Labour because people would think, oh, you know, Labour and the unions, they're all in it together, blah, blah, blah. Labour is causing... labour. The anger would somehow be taken out on the Labour Party. Instead, it's being taken out on the government. It's become just one overload of things that government doesn't seem to be able to manage or make work. And the fact that the Conservatives are doubling down
5: on pay, as well as for nurses, as well as all the other different sectors, is really tricky for them. And already we're seeing signs of slight concern amongst the Tory backbenches. We had Jake Berry, the former Conservative Party chair, suggesting that the government would have to compromise. Steve Bryan, a former health minister, is also understood to be concerned about it, and others because. Of course, as Gabby explains, nurses sort of represent a different place in people's hearts from, from other strikers. And I think the feeling is that while the 19% pay rise that they're asking for isn't affordable, expecting them to stick with 3 or 4% isn't, isn't fair either.
2: The Labour Party, it seems to me, has played most of this in quite a sort of nuanced, successful, quite interesting way, hasn't it? In the sense that Keir Starmer and the Labour front bench don't seem to have laid themselves open to a lot of the questions that get thrown at labour leaderships when strikes are happening, right? I wasn't I don't think I was necessarily expecting that to happen. I thought Keir Starmer would have a more difficult time of this strike wave than it's turned
5: out actually. Well, I think Gabby's point is right, isn't it, that it's that ultimately people feel that this is about the government and the government failing to deliver for them when when their services are broken. And the focus is is there. And so actually the best thing Labour can do is kind of extract itself from the argument by saying that it's between the is for the unions and the government to negotiate a settlement. Um, and we've obviously heard West Streeting say that Labour would be unable to meet a nurse's pay rise of five percent above inflation. But those, thus far, trading the middle road on the nurses' strikes and on others is is kind of working working well for them I think they it feels like they just want to keep their heads down and that's probably not a bad political strategy
4: I agree with that but I would say there's probably some people there are almost certainly some people on the left who have been disappointed by the fact that Labour hasn't been more sort of aggressively in support of the strikers. Generally, people who are unhappy with Keir Starmer anyway, to be honest, rather than people who were thrilled up till now. But, you know, you do hear those complaints. And I think, you know, some in the parliamentary Labour Party will be a bit uncomfortable about them.
2: Right, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we are going to answer some of your questions on what might happen in 2023, with a little uh, lingering trace of what the hell happened in 2022. Welcome back. We asked you on Twitter and on the Guardian's website this week to send us some of your questions about what happened in 2022 and what we might see unfold in 2023. We already know that 2023 will see no end of stuff. The coronation of King Charles, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and likely movement on the Northern Irish Protocol and the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool is this coming year. Um, A huge political event of immense significance. Broadly speaking, Gabby, I don't know whether you can pick the big two or three sort of political developments that you're looking ahead to?
4: So I think 2023 brings us to the beginning of an election campaign because if you assume that the long campaign starts about a year out from the actual campaign I think we're going to see Labour going into more sort of big idea mode with any luck um, to starting to flesh out its ideas in more detail to sort of present itself as more of a government in waiting the Tories are going to be very very focused I think in delivering on two things the economy and the small boats issue which is what they're voters um, really care about. If I was going to be optimistic, I would say that hopefully we'll see inflation peaking. So a bit of relief there, even though it's obviously going to be a tricky time for people in terms of energy bills going up. And I just wonder about... COVID has had the potential to spring a lot of surprises. I am really, really hoping that we are past the stage of a resurgence of the pandemic, but hopefully we'll be moving further into a sort of accountability phase, the beginnings of looking back at what went wrong um, and in a more detailed way than Matt Hancock managed in his pandemic diaries, put it that way. Uh,
2: okay, which you have read in full. We should remind readers that you really suffered.
4: I did. I earned my money, let me tell you. <laughs>
2: um, Pippa, uh, just just briefly, I, I was just wonder about the fate of... of uh, the political parties as we look ahead into twenty twenty three, there are local elections in May, and one the sort of it's a racing certainty that the Tories will get another thumping.
5: Yeah, and that's that's probably a good bet, John. Um, that's certainly the first big electoral test that Rishi Sunak will face. There's been a series of by elections thus far in very safe Labour seats, so there's only so much you could read into them. But this will be the first time that we'll actually be able to properly analyse and no doubt extrapolate what it might mean at a general election and see whether these polls, which have Labour currently anywhere between 15 and 30 points ahead, are soft or whether actually there's something in it and it looks like Labour is on course at the general election to a majority.
2: Right, let's move Let's move on to some of the questions that we've been sent. Alexander on Twitter wanted to ask us about Brexit. He said, how will Starmer's Labour and soon-that's Conservatives deal with an electorate that is increasingly becoming pro-rejoin? That's a good point, isn't it? What does that mean for politics? Even the Lib Dems won't talk about Brexit. We're still in a weird place, aren't we?
4: I think you're starting to see a little bit of edging towards it though and just question very gently how strong the enthusiasm is for rejoin yes you can see polling majorities now for rejoin or for the idea that Brexit has gone badly but I think what people are thinking still at the moment when you say rejoin is go back to like it was before 2016 I think if you start explaining what rejoining might actually mean i.e that we won't be allowed back on the same terms and that it might mean joining the euro and that you know you will have changed what we're rejoining is 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 changing then I think some of those those figures might soften but I think what's happened is a space has opened up where the, for the government, they can do a, uh, they can if they want to do a relatively sane deal over the Northern Ireland Protocol. They've got a bit more space for that than they have had, and I think for the Labour Party, there's a bit more space, just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit more space, to creep closer to the idea that maybe we could have a slightly closer relationship with the EU. In about thirty years' time, we'll be back, but not yet.
2: Yes, no, that's, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Particularly on our side of politics, I think these questions about Brexit very often have running through them, the idea that it'd be very simple that we can just rejoin. Now, the point is they would not have us back. It's like letting that very drunk troublesome violent mad person back in your house on new year's eve you just don't do it you know it's time they they got their taxi and disappeared for a fair old while uh, right pippa question for you cj on twitter asks what is next for the scottish independence referendums
5: so it's been really interesting shifts since the supreme court verdict that the snp have are talking less about independence and more about democracy And that's about making sure that people in Scotland have their say, whichever side of the independence debate they're on. And it's having some resonance. We've seen that in recent polls since the Supreme Court verdict, which seemed to suggest that we've had four in a row thus far, that there's there's a majority in favour of Scottish independence. I mean, obviously, after an election, a, a referendum campaign, who could tell? But I don't think there'll be another one because... I think that the SNP have really run out of road on it. This particular government, the Conservative government, are not going to budge. They're just not going to say anything. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to offer anything. So there's not going to be a, a legal referendum. And Nicola Sturgeon has ruled out a wildcat referendum this side of an election. The only sort of glimmer of hope for her is that she has suggested that the general election would be effectively de facto referendum campaign. And if the SNP gets more than 50% of the vote in Scotland, Westminster should grant them another referendum. Now, they're obviously going to push for that, but that's problematic within the SNP as well. There are lots of people, including some say some of those around the new Westminster leader, Stephen Flynn, who are not so keen on making the general election just about independence. So, that's their best hope, but I get the feeling that they recognise it's a long shot and that Nicholas Sturgeon could well end up, and I'll probably get attacked for saying this because nothing like the S&P like less than hearing that it might be over for their dear leader, But Nicola Sturgeon, I think, will decide that she's given her best shot after that point and she'll move on to other things.
2: Okay, that's a 2024 or 2025 thing rather than a 2023 thing, clearly. Right, let's talk about the Labour Party. David asked, given that the majority of the voting public gravitate to a more charismatic leader than they would to one who has little or no charisma, that's not always true, Incidentally, otherwise Clement Attlee wouldn't have won the 1945 election, as my dad always says. Do you think Keir Starmer is the right candidate to lead the Labour Party to power? That... That kind of charisma-free, slightly technocratic, I'm competent but I'm not flamboyant kind of persona served Keir Starmer very well against Boris Johnson and certainly against Liz Truss for the 44 days that she was around. There are a few rumblings about the fact that he might not be able to define himself quite as clearly against Rishi Sunak. I don't know what you think of that idea, Gabby, whether there is still a sort of charisma factor as far as Keir Starmer is concerned.
4: I think we know by now that you know, Keir Starmer's has never going to necessarily set the heather on fire the question asks is you know is he likely to lose to a more charismatic leader to which the answer is and the the more charismatic person is where exactly you know there's not There, it's not as if he's up against someone who, you know, sort of sucks all the oxygen from the room. I mean, Rishi Sunak is our sort of first almost made-for-Instagram Prime Minister. He's very good at the sort of set photo opportunities. He does have a certain degree of gold dust in person, but he's not. I wouldn't necessarily call him charismatic. (laughs) Really? Yes, watch him work a room. Really? Watch him work a room. And what you've got is two quite sober, serious people saying, look, I'm going to come in and clear up the mess Liz Truss left, and it's which of those you choose to do it. And the person who does not belong to the same party as Liz Truss and is Not intimately associated with a lot of those failures is an advantage there.
2: Beautifully put. Right here's a question. Thomas on Twitter asks: Have you ever seen or remembered another year in UK politics like this? And do you think we'll ever see one like it again? To which the obvious answer is no. Secondly, secondly, I hope so because it's enough good for business. It was a good (laughs) year to start posting this podcast. I've got to say. Year where
4: everyone's happy.
5: I've quite quickly realised that political predictions are actually really bad business. This time last year, we were predicting all sorts of things. And could we have anticipated the year to come? And it feels like to me, John, that every year since about, well, I'll say 2014, because I'm a Scot and the Scottish independence referendum felt like the beginning of all of this. But every year from that point onwards, we, we thought, oh, my God, we can't have another year like this. I've lost track of the, the amount of. New Year's Eve, I stood there with my husband with a wee glass of champagne and said, it might be good for business, but actually wouldn't mind a quieter year. And every year I've been, I I wouldn't say been disappointed because professionally, obviously, it's kept us very, very busy. But every year it's got busier and crazier. And this year tops the lot.
4: Great for news is normally bad for people, though, I find, this generally.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's the iron rule, isn't it? Uh, Now, Peter asks, isn't it about time the UK grew up and had a written constitution and a constitutional court? He says that Peter Hennessy's good chaps theory of government is clearly failing when bad chaps like Johnson prevail. I mean, that is an interesting question after this, this period of acute chaos, whether this says something pretty fundamental about the sort of untenable, rickety, dreadful British system of government and the fact that it's in need of pretty drastic reform. Gordon Brown was sort of going there the other week when he, when he presented that report to Keir Starmer, I suppose.
5: I'm not sure a written constitution is the answer. I mean, we do have a constitution. It's just an unwritten one based on precedent and the laws we pass in our parliament. And actually I think what Gordon Brown was getting at was more about um, specifics of devolution in the House of Lords. And I think anybody looking at the House of Lords today would see that it is ripe for reform, not least to try and extract some of the more sort of verging on corrupt elements that we appear to be writing about day in, day out. Um, And devolution, I mean, I'm a fan of it. I think that one of the biggest problems that we've seen with the lack of faith in our political institutions in recent years has been because people feel very far removed from power and they feel that they don't have any agency. And that applies to Brexit, Scottish independence, um, cost of living, all sorts of strikes, all sorts of different issues. And if you can bring power closer to people through devolution, genuine power and with it the money to, to implement those powers, and I think that's a good thing. So that—that's the constitutional change I'd like to see.
2: And it's great, Gabby, isn't it? That we're talking about the House of Lords because it is a ridiculous, bankrupt, dire institution. I mean, the fact that that has been pushed into the political foreground this year at last, I think, has been a very, very welcome thing.
4: And the House of Lords is a preposterous thing, and it's only you know kind of, <laughs> of only it survives because it's. For the same reason that I suspect it might well survive this time, which is that trying to do anything about it is exhausting. I mean, I I am coloured by the sort of, you know, having covered the early years of the Blair government, where obviously we had the same promise, House of Lords reform, and it very quickly became bogged down. And the government very quickly concluded that the trouble with reforming the House of Lords is that the House of Lords does not like being reformed. So you have two years that you basically lose to getting anything past the Lords in the name of reform. And that is what I think is going to get in the way again this time.
2: Well, it's always comforting to hear that Ian Botham and Evgeny Lebedev will carry on having a say about the great affairs of state, schools, hospitals and everything else. What a marvellous system it is. Right, last question. Let's conclude. I wonder how we will remember 2022. This one, it seems to me, has just all been about chaos and everything being in flux. But I suppose to draw sort of hard and fast meanings in terms of domestic politics, this was the twilight of the Conservative Party. I think it's highly likely that we'll look look back on it in those terms, you know. This was the point at which it all came to grief.
5: I think that's right. And I think there's a natural political cycle which tends to happen in this country. And we were kind of reaching that point in 2019. But then Boris Johnson, in the 2019 election, reinvented himself rewrote the narrative that the Conservatives could offer something different and prolong their stay in power for a few years. But only, it feels like, just a few years. It's not definite that Labour's going to win the next election. There's still a long way to go. And as this year has shown, events can conspire against politicians in all sorts of different ways. But it does feel to me like we've reached that point this year in the political cycle where finally the Tories
4: are looking like they're going to be out of power.
2: But never get complacent, eh, Gabby? This is the Conservative Party we're talking about.
4: I think that. I think we'll look back on this year with a sense of disbelief primarily more than anything else. You know, it was the year where everyone got to be Prime Minister for at least 15 minutes. But if I'm being optimistic, I would say I'll, we'd look back on it as the moment we kind of hit rock bottom. You know, the Liz Truss six weeks was notable, I think, for pushing things to the absolute limit. It was cathartic in a way in the sense that She went for it so boldly and it blew up so badly that I don't think we're going to be hearing a great deal more from um, that wing of the Conservative Party or indeed from the Conservative Party more broadly for a long time. And in that sense, it was almost a sense of it had to, things had to get this bad for the country to realise that this had to be a turning point. And that's how hope will look back on
2: 2022. As a 1990s Christmas carol went, things can only get better. And on that note, we should draw things to a close send you off on your sleighs we'll have a few weeks off and then we will resume in an equally chaotic fascinating grim awful exciting and all things in between political reality thank you for joining us today gabby and pippa
5: thank you and happy christmas thank you happy christmas
2: Happy Christmas to you! Happy Christmas to everybody listening. Thank you for listening, as ever. Thanks for listening all the way through this year, this year of the New Politics Weekly UK. We really appreciate you being there every week. We seem to have amassed a sort of a loyal and engaged um, listenership, which is a great thing. So, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts, and if you fancy, leave us a review. This, this, as we've just said, is our last episode of 2022. We're exhausted. We got to have some time off. We'll be back in the new year. On Thursday the 12th of January Now while we're here, The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal has begun If you had to pick between heating and eating which would you choose? As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. Join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations raised this year will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects, aiming to support those who've been hit the hardest. If you want to or can donate, you can go to this podcast's webpage. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtehaj and Nicole Jackson.
0: This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news.